why we're a one-stop shop and how we can then help them buy more property and grow their portfolio or sell when it's time and, you know, just do that whole picture. Um, I don't feel like it's selling them. I just feel like I'm, I'm showing them the reasons and, and it's just a resource at that point. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Today, I have Jenny Utz on the show with me. Jenny, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Jenny, I'm excited to hear more about your background. I know you through conferences and through yes. the property management world, but I don't know you well as a person. So for those that don't know, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where okay. were you born? Uh, I was born in, in Maryland, uh, actually still in the same town I am right now. Really? So Westminster, Maryland, it's just a small town. Um, so... From my grandparents to my dad, we are all from the same town, haven't left. Multi-generational. Yes. <laughs> but, but you did actually leave, correct? Yeah. Well, I didn't leave as far as full-time. I do have a place in North Carolina, so I love spending time there. Um, my kids are in Maryland, so when I have them, I'm I'm in Maryland. So tell me some something about your background growing up in Maryland. What was that like? Were you were you into sports? I what was, was your the biggest tomboy you'll ever find. <laughs> Short hair, into all the sports. I would be the one outside playing with all the boys in the neighborhood. Uh, there there were no girls, so I was out there playing football with them, tackle football, baseball. Um, just you know, that's what I did. I had my mom had to yell for us to come in. You know when the lights. When it, was, when it was dark and um, we were just never inside. I think about how it's actually different having that that yell situation. I don't know if the world has gotten any more oh. dangerous, but I remember the yell and yes. that seemed totally reasonable and I would eventually hear it and come right. home. <laughs> Maybe. And, <laughs> and nowadays I don't want to do that. Right. I want to know like, where well, they're at. where you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, times change. It's probably just a function of the fact that I can know and therefore I feel yes. entitled to on some level. So you mentioned recreationally doing sports like that. Mm -hmm. Did you actually play sports at school? I did. I uh, played basketball as point guard, uh, played field hockey, and I uh, did really well in softball as well. So uh, took us to the World Series, was the pitcher. Did the World Series? Oh, yeah, for softball. How'd that, did you win? How'd that uh, game go? We, no. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, very competitive, and so we learned a lot of lessons, and I think that you win one way or the other if you can take away a few key points from that. So we did. Uh, it was kind of fun. We did some adult softball leagues and uh, took that a little way. So it was good. I enjoy working with athletes, people that have that in their background, that grit, that DNA oh, yes. of persistence, I think transfers over well. But there's always some level of mystery of what is it that puts somebody in a position to be an entrepreneur? What is that common thread? Are they born? Are they bred? I, it's a mystery to me, but some of what I think is that entrepreneurship is a will to endure and lean into suffering in a way that is non-rational, like disconnected from money. Yes. Some people just are more okay with that. If you reflect back on your growing up and your childhood, is there anything that you look at that you feel like was a, a precursor that disposed you to going into business? Um, I think a lot of my childhood, and I'll phrase this, I had a great childhood, uh, but there were several key points in my childhood that really, I think, defined who I was. Um, at the beginning, my mom um, wound up with some eating disorders, put her in the hospital for a while 
to the point where her heart wound up stopping. She was um, in ICU, couldn't leave till she had a pacemaker put in. We moved from house to house with different family, relatives, church people uh, for over a month and a half while my dad was helping taking care of her and things like that. Um, that defined basically my middle school life. Mm. I went into high school. My parents had divorced at that point, a uh, very ugly divorce, so learned a lot through that process. Mm. And so when I was 16, my dad, uh, he was a state trooper growing up, and he was heading to a, a, his work on a Friday night. So the Beltway, he was heading that way, and he was actually getting out to pull someone over and was sideswiped by a drunk driver. So his whole person was was hit and thrown out into the middle of, of the Beltway. So he was in intensive care, almost died multiple times, and that set the stage for then the next eight months, hospital bed in our living room. It was just me there with my grandfather How taking care you? of him. 16. 16, mm -hmm. and you're taking care of your dad. Yep. So from um, so he had his hand on his gun as they were, you know, doing the traffic stop. So if it weren't for the skin on his hand, his thumb would have been torn off, his knee, um, eye surgery, his lung collapsed. It, by the time I got there, I was actually at a church retreat. So uh, they were willing to fly to come and get me. Um, and my mom, through the divorce, basically told them no. Um, so I didn't get to see him for a day and a half where he almost, I, I didn't, you know. But um, with all that, him and I were very close. And so- You were already close or it made you closer? We were close. When I decided to move in with him, uh, we, I would take him to all the sporting events at our high school. Um, he was like my best friend. So we did a lot of things together. So then to have that happened and uh, everything just kind of flashed before me. And in high school, you're usually thinking about, oh, what's the next party I'm going to go to? Who am I going to take to the dance? Those types of things. And my priority was getting home and making sure my dad had food and um, his bandages were changed and things like that. How long was that recovery process? He was in a hospital bed in our living room for about eight months. Wow. And eventually he was able to get back up and go back into law enforcement or? He had to retire medically. So oh, wow. he um, wasn't able to do all the functions. And to this day, as far as normal every day, he's fine. But he's got a lot of like nerve damage and stuff that he can't do. You know, law enforcement, full stuff. So if you reflect back on that, what what did that do for you? How did that affect and how does that map to eventually you, you being an entrepreneur? Sure. So I think a lot of it was kind of setting the stage for putting me through a lot of hard times. And I was the one in the family as far as we've, I've got a younger brother or youngest sister and an older brother. I was the one who was taking care of them through my mom's illness and then my dad's injury. So it kind of set the stage for... Uh, like a fight or flight. So you're either going to make it or you're not. And you're going to kind of put your feelings aside and you're just going to fight through until, you know, you turn the corner. Uh, so during all of that, it kind of taught me that in business, you know, things are not easy and uh, you don't give up. And the challenges that I face are kind of actually what I thrive on. I, when it's easy in business, I get bored. <laughs> I'm very bored. Not that I want challenges, but then I, I kind of also create challenges for myself. Uh, the next business I want to do, the next um, property, the next whatever it is. Um, I just like creating different things to to keep my mind going, to keep me uh, fluent in all of that. Mm. 
So that resilience that you gained from that experience brought you closer to your dad. Yes. Time passes on. How do you actually get into to business? Mechanically, what phase of life? Was it post-college? How did that sure. work? So I went to college. I originally wanted to be a physician's assistant. Um, got into all of the biologies and all that stuff the first year, and I said, this is not for me. <laughs> so at that point, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so I got into business, ended up with a dual degree in business and economics, uh, graduated, started in a mortgage company, what it, it wound up being more of a telemarketing mortgage company. Um, that's, obviously, so please tell me more. That, that sounds like that, a, that, that sounds was, like a vibe. Yeah. I had no idea. That's what I was getting into. So the hours were like 11 to nine. So you're just, there's pages and you're just like calling people, like asking them about, you know, how you get all the spam calls. That's what I was doing. I was, this is awful. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, so that, that lasted about four months. I, I can't believe I stuck it out that long, but after that, my dad and my sister were talking about getting their real estate license. And so this was several months after I graduated. And um, I was like, you know what? I hate what I'm doing right this second. I, I'll get my license too. Can't be worse. So, yeah, I was like, we'll figure this out. Well, we got our license basically all at the same time. Um, started a team together. And we sold our first house in a day. After that, market crash. So we've been doing real estate since 2006. Um, oh, so, you really, really timed getting your license there. Yeah, it was, it was great. Um, but after that, it was, once again, this whole fight or flight because people in real estate, when the market's great, they don't have to market. They, they don't have to do anything but put a sign in the yard, sign a contract, and put the, put the property under you know contract. So with going into real estate with a market crash and you know giving us a little bit of time to create processes, streamline things. That's what I really enjoyed doing. My dad really enjoyed actually selling real estate. So we spent a little bit of that time, um, him selling real estate, me building the team. Um, after a couple of years, I wound up getting my broker's license, started the company. Then he kind of kept the team going while I ran the company. And so it was, it was kind of nice because we only learned grit and how to keep going even through, you know, the worst of the worst in 2009 to, you know, whenever it finally ended. And how has your view of what you're doing shifted early on when you're starting a business? It's just an idea of starting a business. Sure. You don't really know what you're doing. How has your view of what the business is and how you relate to it shifted over time? Um, at the beginning, so I was very young, young female in, uh, in my area, a very older male dominated field. Uh, so I was already a little bit of an immature business mindset. I thought that I needed to, um, be a certain person and personify who I was differently to fit in with the older male generation of the realtors that I was trying to compete with. Who was that person you thought you needed to be? I thought I thought I needed to be business suit. I needed to be prim proper, very not me. I'm not, that's not me. Uh, so it took me a while, actually, probably about six years to finally realize, sit back and reflect it and say, you know, I've made it. And it had nothing to do with the person that mm. they thought that I was. It's because of who I actually am. And so, you know, I, I slowly started to bring out my personality and, and thrive that way. And so 
I've not only gotten great business relationships, but some really close friends from that because I've actually been able to open up and now they know the true me instead of this person that I thought I needed Mm -hmm. to be in the work world. The magazine cover. Yeah, not me. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of the business itself and learning how to manage and run a business, one of the beautiful things about entrepreneurship is that there is no playbook. You're not told how to do it. There there is no instruction manual. How have have you learned and managed to figure out things along the way? Lots of trial and error. (laughs) So one of the things that I, I did do is... We got very lucky uh, with a great mentor when we first got into real estate. I think that set the stage for our success in real estate. And I'll say our, my dad and my, myself, my sister wound up getting married and moving to California. So it became the two of us. And, um, you know, we were selling over $100 million in real estate, even in the worst of the markets. So we learned a lot. We hustled, um, grew our team, that kind of stuff. So... I, even if I don't fully know what I'm doing going into something, I've always tried to have at least a mentor of some sort who has gone before me, maybe doesn't do things the way that I would do it, but have at least a, a better understanding. So from real estate, in my um, state, you don't need to be licensed to do property management. So there's no playbooks at all for how you were even supposed to do it. So for the first couple of years when I decided to get into real estate, I was just doing it like a normal realtor would do because mm-hmm. I didn't know any better. Uh, it wasn't until I came to NARPM that I finally realized, wow. I mean, I wasn't doing it fully wrong, but I also wasn't doing it fully right. So just learning, doing that kind of stuff. When I got into the HOA world, I uh, brought a lady who had just retired and let her kind of teach me how she did things. And it's, it was kind of nice because I was able to take what she had and then bring it to how I want to do things, but with the understanding of at least the right way to do it. What kind of business do you aspire to run? If you described it not in terms of size or revenue, but in terms of the vibe, the ethos, the feel, what what does it feel like? Um, So I have created a family atmosphere, which is really nice. Um, My girls work hard. I say girls because at the time, right now I have all all females. Uh, We work hard. We we play hard. Um, All of them have kids or husbands or a life. So I... I do not, I'm not one to sit and micromanage anything. Um, They all are very clear on what the expectations are at the office. And from there, they have full reign to run within that. So um, that's kind of how I see things. I'm one who wants to take experiences over um, money. I want to go explore things and stuff like that. So I don't want to be in the business working 24 seven. I want to help grow it, build it. Um, but let my staff who are very capable and, and well-trained to take the reins and, and do what they do. What are some key decisions that you feel like have enabled that people run businesses in all kinds of different ways? Are there any things you can point to of things that you didn't do or things you were doing and you stopped doing that have allowed you to have that kind of setup? So about 15 years ago, I ended up with Uh, meningitis. So I was on a floor. My grandparents were taking care of me at the time. I had my son. He was an infant, but I I couldn't think about anything because I couldn't sit up longer than 20 seconds without passing out. So that was about six weeks of like they had to have food ready for me and I would just get up, eat, lay back down. And so that was kind of a turning point with like 
having things that needed to be in place who, if I couldn't be there, that I would know things were still running. Um, so with that being said, it was, it was always set up that way where, yes, there might not be some of the high level things that were being done, but when I came back, things were still the same way that it was when I left. Um, they took everything and they just kept the ship running. So it was really, it was really impressive to see. And there obviously were some key points that I, that we needed to work on some of the extra processes, some of those types of things, but it was nice to see that at least the framework that we set up, the thought process of why I wanted that stuff done kind of, um, came to fruition and played out well. So you had an early experience that was a hard slap that connected you to the reality that this sort of thing could happen that benefits sure. you regardless of whether or not you're on the floor or you're on a beach having that kind of stability. Right, right absolutely. And then you start thinking, well, that could happen to a key member of my team. Um, you know, so the whole lead simple thing, you know, have these things written down and have this so that way if somebody does get sick or wants to take an extended vacation or has a child that that you can offer them that extra time off because anyone can step back in and kind of see where they started, where they are and how to finish it. What's the pride and the satisfaction for you like of being a business owner and seeing where you came from and what you have today? It's interesting because it wasn't probably till about two years ago where I really sat down and kind of reflected on where I was because when you sit there in the grind for so long, mm. it's hard to actually see what you've accomplished. And, um, you know, you always want more, you always want to find the next thing. And, and even when there's a, a big win, it's like, okay, I take that for a minute and then it's like, okay, what's next? So without taking that time and, and reflecting, I wasn't even thinking about it, but Looking back, listening to what other people have said about me and things like that, you're like, you know, things things are okay. Things are good. You've done a good job. What would you say to somebody young that's coming into the business specifically about being able to separate your personal identity from the results of the business? Um, that is hard. I'm still in the small town dealing with that because I can't go do anything personally without somebody in the small town. Um you know, coming up and talking to me. So still a personal struggle um, because I do like to kind of have my personal space. But I will say, you know, that is worth the rewards that I've gotten in business. If you think about some of the relationships that you've been able to form within the industry, that to me is a lot of the richness of being here and having connections. What, how have you seen the industry change? Like the, the let's say the, the community that we happen to be in right now, what shifts have you seen over the last five, five years plus? The biggest is, is technology, the use of, you know, a lot of key features that you can incorporate. It's still a people business, but I always like to say, um, it's putting people in the places that they should be in and not in the mundane tasks that, you know, automation or somebody else could handle. Uh, so I think being able to really grow and do those types of things. So I, I always say to my staff, you need to be on the phone with our owners, our tenants, the people that actually matter instead of those daily tasks that we can have, you know, our automation handle. Let's talk a little bit about sales and marketing. I'm fascinated by the idea of conscious versus unconscious competence. Conscious competence is something that not only are you good at, but you can explain why you're good at it. You really understand it. My good friend, former partner, Jeremy Pound says that the strength of the owner is oftentimes the weak weakness of the business because you're sufficiently good that you don't feel the need to delegate and you don't mm -hmm. feel the need to explain. 
you strike me as somebody that has that more aggressive sales marketing temperament. So I'd love to hear as best you can, how do you think about what that gifting or ability is and what progress have you made in being able to push that into the rest of the organization? That's okay. So I think uh, as far as being able to give the sales portion to somebody else, that is definitely, I want to give it to somebody else and I have, but have I fully? You're still in it. You're <laughs> still in it. I fully? Um, and I will say yes and no. Um, that's on me. But I, to me, it's not even sales. I just really enjoy talking to people and I always consider myself, and I've said it from day one, I, I want to be a resource center for everyone. And I feel like with the, the knowledge that I've gained for all these years, not that someone else can't do it because I'm not saying that they're not capable, but it's like I've got a lot of the information and for the business that I've created from real estate to property management to also owning a remodeling company, mm. when you're speaking to these people um, and you can fully show them the picture of why we're the ones for them and how, you know, we can do the full gamut of things um, and why we're a one-stop shop and how we can then help them buy more property and grow their portfolio or sell when it's time and, you know, just do that whole picture. Um, I don't feel like it's selling them. I just feel like I'm, I'm showing them the reasons and, and it's just a resource at that point. Do you own any property yourself? Yeah, I do. Let's talk about the remodeling business then. Sure. I'm very interested in turnkey, why there is not more of it and why to the extent that there is some of it, it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. Turnkey in some people's minds has a bad reputation. Turnkey is oftentimes facilitated by people that have one of the competencies required to make it happen. You have the financing piece, you have the management piece, you have the construction piece. Mm -hmm. If you're only good at one and you outsource the others, that can be a recipe for, for bad things. But if you can do all three, wow, what an unlock, what, sure. a, what, a, what a way to serve people. How did you end up being more full stack? And what do you have to say about the opportunity associated with being full stack? So at the beginning, um, it came out of necessity because it's very hard to find vendors that one will go out whenever I need them to be kind of at our beck and call because we've got the properties that need to be uh, maintained or emergency calls or stuff like that. Um, and at the time, we were also doing a lot of real estate. So um, one of the members on our team did a lot of foreclosures and bank-owned properties. So it was risky because I didn't know if we would have enough work for, you know, having a staff for the maintenance. But we added the foreclosure side and did the maintenance and started, started that way. So at that point, there was plenty of work. Um, we grew from one to two to up to five. And then from COVID, we had to drop back down to three just because of staffing and stuff like that. Uh, so it's been it's been a whirlwind, but we've gone from just doing property maintenance and, and uh, foreclosure work to now full custom remodels, decks, basements, kitchens, and also the maintenance. So uh, it's about 50-50 on, on which takes the lead. Business, competence, business competencies are kind of like a magic trick in the sense that once you know how to do it, it doesn't seem that hard. What would you say to your colleagues that know residential property management like the back of their hand, but think that the idea of construction or remodeling sounds like way too much pain in the rear, lots of sure. things that could go wrong, et cetera. What would you say about what it's been like to gain that competency? I would say, I mean, I am not one who knows all of the ins and outs of construction. I obviously have learned a lot through having the company, but if you put the right people in place, and that's the same thing for any company that you're going to do. So if you've got the people that you're going to trust to 
to run it or to do the estimates or to do the actual work, um, you've got to rely on them just like you rely on anyone else in your office. Um, they're going to make or break you just like anyone else's. So um, I've learned a lot as far as trial and error on what not to do, what prices to charge, all of those things, but it's definitely been worthwhile. And I would say that having control over that aspect of thing, being that mm -hmm. it is one of the most important pieces of the property management world is so much more important than to having that fear of, well, what if I don't do something right? Or what if, you know, this doesn't work out? I want to press into that. What I'm hearing is that it's not just a buck. You could start, you could start a lemonade stand and maybe make the equivalent amount of revenue. But you're saying the capability that you gain as an adjacency to the core service of property management why, why is that so significant? How, how, what would the QA component be like if you were just working with third-party contractors by contrast? So from when we've worked with third-party in contrast to what we do now, I take full responsibility for the work that my guys do. So that means if a tenant's not happy, if someone's not happy, I have them right back out. It's a lot harder to say for an owner, um, okay, well, this company did that. Let me see if they're willing to go back and stand behind the work that they do. Uh, some will, obviously, you know, we try and bring those types of vendors on, but in a world right now where it's hard to even get vendors to go out to our properties, um, outside of our staff, you know, you might not get that. So to have that kind of control over who's doing the work, guaranteeing the work, going back out to the property. Um, another key thing that I like to say is for our owners, it also puts tenants at ease when they've got a vendor coming out as opposed to someone from the property management world. And my people know what our leases um, say. So with them understanding what our leases are and, and who's supposed to be in those properties and what pets are supposed to be there and those types of things, they're almost mm. our eyes and ears in the inside when our tenants don't even realize that they're coming not only to fix something, but kind of doing a nonchalant look through as they're going. So it, it kind of brings a, to light a few things that we might not have seen in a normal walkthrough. Now let's talk about the dollars and cents of it. Talk to me about the, the revenue op and the profitability and the potential liability associated with that business unit. Sure. So the profitability, I mean, we are we run between a 20 and 30% profit on the remodeling side. Um, it was a little bit higher when we had a little more staff and was doing more, but right now uh, that's about where we stand. So it's been good. Um, and so also when we don't do the work ourselves, I still have other contractors that are doing the work and I'm still charging and putting everything through my company. And what about the liability? What, what could go wrong with that side of the business? Sure. So, um, I mean, obviously I've got plenty of insurance for all the liability, but the biggest liabilities so far that we've faced is, you know, an installation of something not gone well or, you know, just something that needs to be redone or things like that. Uh, we, as far as liability with employees, I did have an employee fall down the steps. We had to deal with uh, all of his recovery. So it's just, you know, it's things like that that you have to take care of. But once again, if you've got insurance and things in place, it's just one more thing that you just work through. What advice or counsel would you have to somebody new coming into the business, specifically about being a woman advocating for yourself in business? advocate for yourself. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. Um, you can do it. You know, I've got two kids, I'm divorced, so I'm doing the kids by myself running the companies. Um, and it, you know, yes, there's a lot going on, but also you're fully capable of handling it all. 
Have you found instances or situations where you felt like somebody was relating to you specifically because of your gender and maybe wanting to push some boundaries or pull one over on you because of that? There's been times where we've had conversations and I've definitely been spoken down to because I am a female um, and there is nothing that you could say to show that you knew what you were talking about, that, you know, you could work with them. Um, I wound up firing an owner who had 76 doors just because of the way he spoke to me and my staff. And I, I won't I won't lose any staff members over a mm. dollar. Mm. Um, they're way more important to me. So I think also showing the culture in the office of what you will and won't stand for. I don't think they actually thought I would do it. And when he came in for the last meeting we had and he spoke to one of the girls the way he did, I fired him right there. So on the spot, it was, um, I think it was a very big morale boost for everyone in the office <laughs> that, that I chose them over the, the 75 doors that he had. That's called a public hanging. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, you need a public yeah. hanging. See you later, bud. <laughs> <laughs> to remind people yeah. where you stand. Yes. That's awesome. I love that anecdote. When you think about taking care of your staff and developing leaders, how have you grown as a leader in the way that you relate to mentoring and leading your team? Sure. So at the beginning, I think I was still trying to figure out who I was and what I thought I needed to be. So there was a lot more talking to people mm -hmm. in the office as, as opposed to them talking to me, me asking questions, um, them, me guiding them, but them taking the lead and, and figuring out, you know, what it is that, that they can do. And so it got to the point where they used to just come to me and ask me all kinds of questions just because I was at the office when they knew the answer, they mm -hmm. just wanted me to tell them. And so finally they either don't ask me not because I'm not available, but because they know that they already know the answer. Um, so it's given them a lot more power and freedom with, I think the way that I've shifted my mindset of, I, I know my place, I know where I am. And so let's go ahead and put everything into my people now. Who do you learn from? Are there any books, podcasts, resources, specific Ed people? Ed Milet's my uh, number one that I, I literally watch him every morning. Max out. Um, <laughs> max out. So um, I watch him for a little while every morning, uh, do my whole morning routine. So he he's one of those, um, but just different ones throughout. But but he would be the one that I go to a lot. Are there any books that you were really, were really impactful for you? Um, so I just got done reading his, but if you watch, if you listen to enough of his stuff, it kind of says the same types of things. Um, but let's see, what's some of the last ones we read? Um, I really liked, oh, I can't think of his name. Um, the military guy. Jocko. Yeah. So he, he was a good one. Um, and then a couple more basically where it was like, stop caring what other people think and just do you. Mm. So those those are been impactful i'm curious to get your take specifically on the vendor space as an operator that has been coming to trade shows for some time knows a lot of different vendors in your mind what distinguishes service providers to your business that might cross that line from a transactional one-off to a really more weighty substantive relationship talk to me about that delta and what sits on both sides sure so to me coming here Somebody who's actually going to sit there and listen to my business, um, care about me, um, care about where the business is going, um, I will give them much more time of day than someone who's just going to shove a pamphlet in my face and you know sell their services. To me, I don't know how you're going to sell a service to me if you don't even know what I'm doing. So the whole relational aspect, and I think it's really hard to say 
someone is and isn't doing that here because NARPM is really has really got some great vendors. So you don't see it as much here as you might in other conferences I've been to, like our HOA conferences. I feel like it's a night and day difference from the types of vendors that there are. Uh, so it's really cool to be a part of NARPM and and see the vendors that we have here and how far they'll go to make sure that, that you feel valued and that you, you understand that your business is important to them. You mentioned HOA. Let's go there. I want to hear more about that. Okay. Oddly, I got my start, start working for a venture-backed HOA company years and years ago. Okay. It was short, short stint, about a year. I haven't been back there in some time. <laughs> so it's it's foreign to me. But you make this comment of like that the vendors over there are, are way different. Why? why? Why is it different? I mean, it's, I think, it's houses, it's people, it's relationships, right? Yeah, it's just um, I think that they haven't learned – uh, at least in conference setting, I'll, I'll say that, because we do have some that do visit us and stuff like that. Um, but as far as conferences go, the way that you feel the love from these vendors, and, you know, it's from one to two, three, it, it's all the way down the line here with, you know, just the cool things that our vendors do for us. Um, it's not as, um, you don't see it as much. In, in the HOA world, they might take you to dinner and, you know, tell you still about their products and, you know, those types of things, but it's just not to the same level. And you is know, it more buttoned up? Is it more formal? It's, uh, it depends on where you go, okay. but yeah, it, there's, it's, it's definitely got more of a, uh, uptight feel okay. than I would consider this like a family atmosphere mm. versus maybe a business casual atmosphere, you know? So it's a little bit different. Uh, once you get to know, and uh, they were just talking downstairs that, you know, get to know people, it turns into like a NARPM cult because you just get sucked in. And it's true from vendors to people that you know. I mean, I've made a lot of great friends here. So if you invest the time, I mean, that's also important. You can't go sit in your room and expect to mm -hmm. feel the love here. But, you know, if you invest the time, uh, at least here in NARPM and our vendors, you're going to receive it back. Now, let's talk about the business side of that industry. We're seeing more folks that are dabbling in short-term HOA is a popular one. How long have you been in HOA? How do you get into it? And would you recommend, under what circumstances would you recommend it for somebody that's primarily in single family? I would not recommend it if you're not actually going to dive into the HOA world. It's just like the, the same thing I would think with realtors trying to do property management. If you're not going to take it seriously, if you just want it as another revenue source, then by all means, please don't do it. Um, but I took it very seriously. I actually went um, my PCAM, so that's the highest designation you can get in community management. Um, I got that in five years, and um, you know we we manage about five thousand uh, doors on the HOA side. So it's it's important to know what you're doing because it is a different ball game than just you know rentals and and tenants and stuff. A lot of different laws, a lot of different. Um, covenants, guidelines, articles of incorporations, all, all the stuff that every single community has, you have to know inside and out, understand their budget. Um, it's just different. So it's different. And yet it seems close enough that we're even having the conversation about starting from one and going to the other. What are the synergies? If, if every time I talk with somebody about it, they're kind of like push back on the, the idea of these synergies. Are there any synergies? I will say I have completely different staff for, for both, different software, different staff, different banking systems, different everything, um, mostly because I have found, at least to this point, there is not a software who even say, okay, we do residential and HOA, 
well, you don't do one or the other very well, you know, no offense, but they're different. So um, the things that are beneficial on the HOA world that make their lives easier from when they're doing inspections, the type of architectural guidelines that they need to follow, being able to put all of that information into a software is not the same that you need over, you know, on the residential side. So, you know, I, I would say the only, the only thing that we overlap on is our bookkeeper sometimes will go and they'll alternate, you know, if, if someone's out and, and reconcile books and things like that, but nothing, we've got completely different HOA managers. They're all certified in the HOA world. Um, and our residential girls know nothing about that side. What is your tech stock look like on the, on the HOA side? Um, so we just switched to sync. Um, it's a newer software. Um, actually the transition just got complete this past month. So we came from a software called VMS and it was a little bit of an obstacle getting the transition complete. We've been doing it for a few months, but we're finally there and, um, it's, it's a much needed change. Do you see innovation in that industry is the, it's, oh, sorry. It's about a, a few years behind because when I was talking several years ago about say the different. Uh, things that we add for increasing our, our dollar per door on the residential side. Nothing was ever even talked about on the HOA side because of the HOA side, all we were getting is our fees, our management fees, the HOA resale doc fees, um, and maybe some office expense, you know, uh, added up. But now coming to the, the conferences um, on the HOA side, they're starting to talk about how can we make more dollars per community without just raising, you know, their management fees. So we've had that talk for, I mean, at least what, three years talking about resident benefit package, adding uh, different fees, getting from dollar per door for, I mean, we were at a dollar per door at 185 and now in about two years, we're up to 250. So, um, you know, learning about that, doing all that stuff. And now we're going to work on implementing it over on the HOA side. One should imagine a crazy scenario somehow some way you're forced to pick one and shut down the other would you press on residential residential oh yeah absolutely no question not no and yet you're content to be running the hoa side did have you ever thought about selling the the hoa side i thought about it absolutely i i have really good staff in that spot as well so while I, I don't, if I had to run a community, <laughs> if you personally, so if I, if I had to run a community, I think I would have sold it a very long time ago, but that's what you need to do to me. Once again, I, I've never done any, I've never put someone in a position in my company where I haven't mm. done it first. Mm. So I know everything about all the stuff that we've already done. So when I put someone in a position to run that side for me, um, I already know how to do it. I already know, you know, what we did. So it's very easy for that to, to happen. Um, and now I understand what they're doing, how they're doing it and, and everything like that. So somebody starting out would have to basically kind of take a step away from running their residential side to then run a community to communities until they build it up, till they have a, a solid understanding of what they're doing, till then they can even afford to bring someone in on the HOA side because you would need several communities for that or you know, take a step back to take a few step forwards. Um, but yeah, I would definitely not have them dabble if they're not going to go full steam. Having already done a lot, what are your goals and aspirations for the business now? 
So the business right now, my my goal in life is, I think I said it before, experiences, doing things, um, not being in the business every day. So I'm not the type of person who has a goal of, I want 4,000 doors. It's, it's never going to be me. Um, I want the business to run smoothly, efficiently, um, and make me the money that I need so that I can go do my other things. I um, bought another company that's completely not even related to anything in the real estate world a couple of years ago. So that's been fun. What is it? Um, it's a woodworking company. So it's a completely different ball game, but it's actually one that people like and enjoy. And so they're not mad at you all the time, uh, which that's is a nice change. Yeah. It was going to be something like that or like an ice cream shop or something. You know, I, I want people happy for a few, but uh, they, we do like custom notebooks, pens, flasks, like, and now we're kind of doing a shift into manufacturing for other companies for that very thing. So that's been fun. It's been challenging. It's been something new, but it's been a fun change. So for me, being able to go out, buy more properties for myself, um, you know, do experiences in life with my kids, be there for their uh, sporting events, all of those things are very important to me. So the next several years, it's still going to be buy more properties, keep the businesses running the way they are, make them better. Um, but it's never going to be, I need to get to this number of doors. That's just not my goal. Tell me about your experience bucket list. Um, so traveling has been really big. I had my son when I was very young. So I was 22 when I had him. Um, so in my 20s, when everyone else was living their life, I was raising my son and starting my companies. So now my experiences are going to be more traveling, more time with friends, more times with family. Um, and just like knocking those types of things off my list. Some other things, um, you know, buying properties in areas where I just want to travel. So that's, I started doing that this year, which will be fun. So doing those types of things is, uh, is kind of what gets me going now. But where Jenny, where is on the bucket list? <laughs> where do, I mean, there's, there's a lot of places on my bucket list. I know some of my friends just came from like Iceland. I want to go over, you know, to, uh, like Japan and spend some time there. Um, just a lot of different places, like farther away that I've never just been able to say, okay, I'm taking four weeks and just rolling out. Um, I want to go just experience different areas of the world. Some places with some culture shock. Mm -hmm. I love that too. Absolutely. So if you were counseling somebody, let's say that's younger and you can tell that they're capable. You can tell that maybe they have a temperament like yours. And part of the, the thing that I think it's interesting about that temperament is that what I make up is that somebody like you could make quite a bit of money in a corporate context mm -hmm. going into management. And when you go down that path, it makes it really hard to jump into entrepreneurship because the baseline is financially right. fulfilling. And there is no right answer of who should go into entrepreneurship. It's not morally superior to any other right. life choice that you could make. How would you counsel somebody that's young to self-examine and reflect on whether or not entrepreneurship is the right path for them? If they are willing to make sacrifices at the beginning to get them further ahead, because when I first started, I was making $9,000 when the market crashed. And so but I was still working till 2 a.m., building systems, putting things in place. So I was eating ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly, making $9,000 and working harder than anyone else. Uh, so you have to realize that your friends are going to be in the corporate world. You know, when I was back then, I mean, make, them making fifty or $60,000 was a lot of money coming out of college. So, and I'm making 9000 So you have to understand that, and now I'm well, well past them, but it took several years of me building that 
and watching them do well in corporate world and me wondering if what I'm doing is even going to make a difference or if it's even mm -hmm. going to pan mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And you just have to have the mindset of pushing through that. If you don't feel like you can take that step back to gain 10 steps ahead, then it's probably not right for you. You know, my reflection is the way that you articulate that can almost sound like a financial proposition of like, it's rough for this period of time, but eventually it pays off. Mm -hmm. That's one way to think about it. My reflection over time is that it's actually like what you shared about the ramen and working until 2 a.m. for $9,000, that that actually is the thing. Mm -hmm. That's actually the gift. There's a subset of people who, even though they may not say that they enjoy it, kind of get off on it in some kind of a sick way. Well, that's okay. So in real estate, when I we switched brokerages, um, I took my entire team, which at that time we were doing a lot of business uh, from well, I won't say the names, from a larger company to an actual smaller company, mostly because I liked the profit that I was going to be making from them and also the culture that they had. It was much different. And I remember the manager at the larger firm saying, if you leave us, you will fail. You will not succeed. And I took that and I was like, here we go. Let's go. Don't do this. You you can't say that to <laughs> you me. You just so, sabotaged yeah, it. Yeah, I was like, here we go. So um, every time I see her at an event, I just smile and how you doing, you know, but you know, it's, it's those types of things. And in, mm. in a warped up, in a warped sense, though, I thrive on someone not thinking I can do it. I thrive on sometimes me even thinking I can't do it. Mm. And then when I actually do it, what I won't do is I will never give up. So I'll have a bad day doing something and I'll, I'll allow myself to have that day. Um, I will give myself the opportunity and grace to take the day, be upset, reflect, but the next day, if you think I'm going to be down again, it's not going to happen. So I think it's also not being too hard on yourself, giving yourself that that grace to to fail a little bit. But how are you going to change the next day? It's hard to communicate how valuable it is to have a chip on your shoulder in a business setting. Mm -hmm. When you think about your own kids, do you think either of them might have an interest or a temperament towards entrepreneurship? I think entrepreneurship, uh, my daughter... I definitely see doing something. She, she's, she's a spitfire. So my son is very smart, but I do think he'll wind up in a corporate setting, but, uh, probably do well. He's, he's got leadership skills. I just don't know if it's entrepreneur, but he will do well as well. That's fantastic. Well, Jenny, I appreciate you coming on. I Thank love you hear, hearing everything that you're up to <laughs> and, you. uh, it's been a long time coming. So yes, it's a Thanks pleasure for inviting me. Thanks. Until next time. Jordan here asking you, what do you got? What is a question you want to ask me? Can you stump me? Can you throw me something hard, perplexing, vexing, something you feel tied up in knots with? Throw it at me. I'll do my best to try and answer that question, to dissect it, to parse out the nuance and maybe help you get a bit more clarity. I'm looking for questions as the basis for creating content and you're looking for answers as the basis for clarity and wouldn't it be perfect if those two things matched up? Drop a comment, send me, send me an email, jordan at leadsimple.com. Let's stay in the conversation. Peace.